This is the My Dark Path Podcast. What is it about the human condition that makes us believe that the odd, eerie, or abnormal are just a relic of the past? Perhaps it's just generational hubris that makes us believe that we're more enlightened than the previous. Mark Twain, ever the humorist, observed, quote, When I was 14, my father was so ignorant that I could hardly stand to have the old man around. Then I turned 21, and I was astonished at how much he'd learned in seven years. End quote. As we age, I think we realize that humans are very much the same across the years, despite very different circumstances. Strange uses of the bodies of the dead certainly fall into this category. Some were more familiar with, such as the embalming practices of the ancient Egyptians. In one of our early episodes in My Dark Path, we covered the story of Elmer McCurdy, who became much more famous in death than he ever had been in life. He was a rather unsuccessful bank and train robber. In his last ill-fated heist, he was shot and killed in a gunfight with three sheriffs. His corpse was brought to an undertaker in Oklahoma who used a new embalming technique. But when no one paid for the mortician's work, Elmer started his illustrious post-death career in show business. First, the embalmer demonstrated his advanced technique by putting Elmer on display to the public. Then, through a series of increasingly bizarre transactions, Elmer's corpse was purchased by different people in show business, appearing in movies and amusement parks. All the while, his exploiters gradually forgot that this prop was, in fact, a corpse. Forgot, that is, until his arm broke off as he was being moved around on the set of the TV show The Six Million Dollar Man. To the horror of the crew, they realized the mannequin was actually a human corpse. You can find the full, amazing, and tragic story of Elmer McCurdy in Season 1 of My Dark Path. And with Elmer's story in mind, an odd event in Colorado caught my attention. The town of Nederland celebrates Frozen Dead Guy Days every year. That's right, Frozen Dead Guy Days. Now, without any additional insights, I knew I had to make the trip there and investigate. At the very least, if there were no actual frozen dead guy, I'd have a good story about an event that over-promised and under-delivered. But as I learned, this festival was inspired by an event on the not-so-historic date of November 6, 1989. This journey opened my eyes to the world of cryonics and how the idea of living after death no longer exists in the realm of science fiction but is, in fact, on the precipice of scientific reality. Hi, I'm M.F. Thomas, and this is the My Dark Path podcast. In every episode, we explore the fringes of history, science, and the paranormal. So if you geek out over these subjects, you're among friends here at My Dark Path. Find us on Instagram, visit MyDarkPath.com, and see our videos on YouTube. But no matter how you choose to connect with us, I'm so grateful for your support. Also, if you want more My Dark Path, subscribe on Patreon. I'm releasing a new subscriber-only episode every month. Plus, subscribers get free My Dark Path swag like t-shirts, books, and more. I appreciate our subscribers so much as they help the show grow. 
If you stay until the end of the episode, you'll also hear a special promotion for the Ghostly Podcast. It's one of our favorites here at My Dark Path. So let's begin with episode 40, The Frozen Dead Guy. Part 1 The history of Nederland, Colorado itself significantly predates this unusual festival. The town was formally established in 1874, but started out approximately 25 years earlier as a trading center between the Ute Native American tribe and European settlers who explored the West. The Utes were among the oldest residents of Colorado. Like other indigenous populations, the effort to maintain the lands against the westward expansion became a losing battle. They were uprooted from their homelands and pushed into barren lands that were of little or no use. Several treaties between the Utes and the U.S. government failed in 1863 and 1868. But finally, on September 13, 1873, following renewed negotiations, Leaders from various bands of the tribe, along with a representative from the U.S. government, Felix R. Brunot, signed an agreement which later became known as the Brunot Treaty. It was ratified in 1874, and Nederland was subsequently incorporated on November 15, 1885. Today, you may know Nederland as a gateway to several national parks and wilderness preserves throughout Colorado. But Nederland wasn't the original name of the settlement. First, it was called Dayton, and then later Brown's Crossing. After the first post office was established in 1871, it became Middle Boulder after a creek that cut through the middle of the town. The current name came about when, in 1873, the Nederland Mining Company purchased the Caribou Mine, located about six miles northwest of Middle Boulder. The Caribou Mine is at a very high elevation, about 10,000 feet above sea level. At this altitude, the weather, freezing cold weather, deep snow, and brutal winds, required that the ore be processed at a lower altitude in Middle Boulder. Interestingly, the Dutch word Nederlands translates to lowland in English. With all the Dutch mine workers referring to Middle Boulder as Nederland, That became its official name when the town was incorporated. Today, Caribou is a ghost town, while Nederland has become a popular pit stop for those making their way to these nearby outdoor recreational areas. But its role as a gateway to national parks is juxtaposed to its annual three-day nonstop party, complete with live music and themed events, including obstacle courses, coffin races, a hearse parade, the Frozen Dead Guy Lookalike Contest, a Polar Plunge, Human Foosball, a Frozen Sculpture Contest, and a gala called um, Grandpa's Blue Ball. So, if you happen to find yourself at this festival, you can also take a tour of a tough shed turned into a mausoleum, which is where the festival and our story begins. Now, more on that tough shed later. The man at the epicenter of this entire festival is Bredo Morristel, often affectionately referred to as Grandpa Bredo. His role in our story starts on November 6, 1989. While at his family's mountain retreat in Norway, he died of heart failure. Grandpa Bredo was born on February 28, 1900 in 
Romstel, Norway, and settled in Barham, a little west of Oslo. In 1928, he married a woman named Anna, and by 1930, their daughter, Odd, was born. Bredo spent his career at the head of Barham's Department of Parks and Recreations, from which he retired in 1967. And after his wife passed away about a decade later, he stayed in Barham, where he enjoyed being outdoors, skiing, fishing, and painting. In 1979, Bredo nearly died from a heart attack while on a long ski trip. His daughter, Odd, revived him with chest compressions. And throughout the 1980s, Bredo continued to suffer several mild heart attacks, and he attempted to become a candidate for a heart transplant, but was turned away by his doctors. So he settled for a quiet, sedentary life until his death in November of 1989. Like Elmer McCurdy, Bredo gained all of his notoriety after his death, but unlike Elmer, Grandpa Bredo hadn't been an unsuccessful criminal. When Trigva Boger, Bredo's grandson, 31 at the time, heard the news of his death, he immediately planned to preserve his beloved grandpa. Putting your deceased grandfather on ice is, well, an unusual thought. However, Boger was an unusual person. The more we've learned of him, the more his instinct to freeze his grandpa Bredo is consistent with who he was. Years later, he revealed that he believed he had received a message from his grandpa asking him to take care of his remains. He said that the pillows were arranged on his granddad's bed in such a way that they formed a letter T, the first letter of his name. Whether this was a communication from the afterlife or not, Boger was committed to preserving his grandfather's body in the hope that, perhaps, one day Grandpa Bredo would live again. At the time, Boger had been living near Boulder, Colorado for nearly a decade on a temporary visa. During this time, he'd become known among the locals as a sweet, albeit eccentric young man who could be recognized with his distinctive long beard. Boger was deeply concerned about several topics, including surviving a nuclear war, ice bathing, and cryonics. Now, that's a unique combination, but the esoteric interests were not totally out of sync with others in Boulder. Boger's interests even found their way into the community, and he's credited with inspiring Boulder's annual New Year's Polar Bear Plunge. And today, hundreds of people take part in the plunge every year, where people jump into freezing water. In fact, he once held the world record for ice bathing. So, when he learned of his grandfather's death, he had his grandfather's body moved to a cryonic facility run by a company called TransTime in San Leandro, California. And once at TransTime, Grandpa Bredo's body was cryonically preserved and then maintained in that state for three years. Boger never formally discussed his specific reasons for cryonically preserving his grandfather. Still, the reason why this technology had been developed is one of pure faith. Faith that an essentially frozen, preserved body can be reanimated in the future, where death and disease have been eliminated and the body can be restored to normal human life. It's a fascinating and fundamentally optimistic view of the future. But it does now raise the topic about the history and unique history of cryonics. Part 2 
The father of cryonics is considered to be Robert Ettinger. Today, the word cryonics means the practice of preserving life by pausing the dying process using sub-freezing temperatures with the intent of restoring good health with medical technology in the future. He was born in 1918 in New Jersey to Russian Jewish parents. Raised as a Jew, he became an atheist later in life. It's not entirely clear how his rejection of religion and faith impacted his interest in cryonics. Perhaps it was a driver of his passion for finding the cure for death, but ultimately he published the paper The Prospect of Immortality in 1962. Edinger's interest in science fiction and belief in the constant advancements in technology and medicine fueled his idea that aging and dying might one day become voluntary. However, as the years ticked by, human beings were aging and continuing to suffer from incurable illnesses, and reluctantly, Edinger had to accept that the secret to eternal life might not occur in his lifetime. So he decided to find his own path to immortality. He wondered if there were a process in which his body could be frozen in such a way where he could be preserved until the time came where science was sophisticated enough to bring him back to life, effectively circumventing death. Within a few years of the publication of The Prospect of Immortality, the theory was put into action for the first time with a professor of psychology at the University of California. On January 12, 1967, just two hours after he succumbed to his battle with cancer, James Bedford became the first person to be cryopreserved. Shortly after Bedford died, his body was packed in dry ice and stored inside a heavily insulated container. He was later placed in liquid nitrogen to further cool his body, and a cryoprotectant was injected into his body as well. And then, over the course of the next 15 years, he was moved to a series of different facilities in Arizona and California, finally ending up at the Alcor Life Extension Foundation, located in Scottsdale, where Bedford remains to this day. Reportedly, the last time Bedford's body was visually examined, there were no outward signs of deterioration. Unfortunately, that may not necessarily mean that Bedford is ready to be reanimated successfully in the future. Since the time of his preservation, advances in the field of cryonics indicate that there is little chance that he could be resuscitated successfully. First, the cryoprotectant compound he was injected with has been found to not be as effective as originally assumed, meaning that his brain is likely damaged beyond repair. Second, the process of freezing a body without forming ice crystals was not possible at the time of his death. The technique of rapidly cooling a liquid while preventing the formation of ice crystals is known as vitrification, and this makes it likely that ice crystals formed in his cells and damaged tissues throughout his body. Nevertheless, the day of the 12th of January of 1967 is annually celebrated by those interested in the field as it memorializes the day of the first cryonic preservation procedure. Today, there's an estimated 500 people who've been cryopreserved, including 388 in the United States. And if cryopreservation of the entire body is too expensive, some opt for neurocryopreservation, where only the person's head is preserved. Meanwhile, Russia has 80 cryopreserved patients, and a handful of others are in China and Australia. 
Alcor is the home of other famous people who have been cryogenically preserved, one of which is Ted Williams, arguably one of the greatest hitters in baseball history. And while Williams' body may be at peace, how it arrived at Alcor has been mired in controversy following his death in 2002. Rumor has it that Williams' head was removed from his body, shaved, and then had numerous holes drilled into it, and then placed inside a liquid nitrogen-filled receptacle that might resemble your average kitchen stockpot. The rest of his body, now without his head, is also stored in liquid nitrogen inside a steel container numbered 6. Sports Illustrated conducted an in-depth investigation in the year following Williams' death, casting doubt on whether he wanted to be placed into cryopreservation in the first place. The procedure was given the go-ahead by two of Williams' children, John Henry and Claudia. His oldest daughter, Bobby Joe, battled against having it done, insisting that their father's will stated he was to be cremated and his ashes be scattered in the ocean off the Florida coast. However, John Henry and Claudia fought back. They produced a note purportedly written and signed by them along with Williams some three years after he signed his will that all three of them had agreed to. He had agreed on the note that he was to be placed in biostasis after they all died. That note, signed right before Williams underwent a surgical procedure, was written on a napkin. Their wishes, it stated, were to be together someday in the future if there were a chance. Now, it's reasonable to think that a handwritten note, written on a napkin, might not be sufficient to authorize a cryonic preservation procedure, but the procedure went ahead nonetheless. But the circumstances get even worse. Williams, it is suggested, was in a disoriented state during a tape-recorded conversation he had with a company representative when they met him in person. And incidentally, legendary broadcaster Larry King, who passed away at the age of 87 in January 21st of 2021, stated famously in 2016 that when he died, he wanted the, quote, full Ted Williams treatment. King was also serious about being cryogenically preserved in the hope of waking up 100 years from the time of his death. So perhaps you're now tempted by the process of cryonics and want to know how to go about it. In the United States, there are two major companies that provide the service, Alcor, located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and the Cryonics Institute in Clinton Township, Michigan. And once you pick your cryonic service provider and pay your fees, you'll start your membership by wearing a bracelet or necklace that is supposed to be worn at all times. But unlike your standard medical card indicating you have a condition that may require unique medical care, your bracelet or card would say something like this. Whole body donor, if dead, cool with ice, especially head, do not embalm or autopsy, see reverse, reward, uniform anatomical gift act, whole body donor to cryonics institute. My name is Koji. And I'm Michelle. And this is the Japanese America podcast. So this is where we look at all things Japanese American. We will bring alive the history, culture, and people that make up this diverse community. In this month's episode, we'll examine Koji's unique family history. To help bring this story alive, we brought on actor and comedian Derek Mew. He was reported to be extremely pro-Japanese and anti-American in sentiment. 
Her husband was taken into custody by the military authorities under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War. Who was this enemy of the United States? He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast. But because medical staff can miss these cards or jewelry, some members actually have the emergency instructions tattooed directly on their chest. The next stage of your preservation is very straightforward. Your journey to the future via cryonics is to, well, die. Cryonicists believe that death is a process rather than an event, starting when a person's heart stops and then ends at a point of brain death, or essentially a point where the brain is deteriorated so extensively that no future technology could ever restore it and its contents retrieved. So being cryopreserved might be considered nothing more than a protracted medical emergency. But here's an interesting twist to that idea. If a cryonics company cryopreserves someone who has not yet been pronounced dead, then under law they are committing murder, even if that person is terminally ill with no hopes of survival and wishes to be cryopreserved. Now, this isn't just a theoretical discussion, but one of very real consequences, as was in the case of Alcor's eighth cryonicist, Dora Kent. And she wasn't just some anonymous individual, but the mother of life extension activist and Life Extension Foundation co-founder and former Alcor board member, Saul Kent. In December of 1987, while already struggling with Alzheimer's, the 83-year-old Dora came down with pneumonia. Her son had her transported to an Alcor facility where she died on December 11th. Immediately following her death, her head was separated from her body and stored in liquid nitrogen. But here's the problem. When she died, there was no doctor present. Dora's body was later sent to the county coroner and autopsied where it was determined her cause of death was pneumonia. However, the coroner later stated he found evidence that she may have been alive when the cryopreservation process began. In particular, the coroner could not determine if the cryopreservative drugs had been administered before or after her death. As such, he requested Alcor turn over the bodies and records of all eight of their patients, including Dora's head. The coroner called a press conference and made accusations that maybe Dora wasn't dead after all when the cryonic procedure had started. Soon after, a SWAT team conducted a raid on the facility, hoping to seize the frozen head of Dora, claiming it was necessary to test it to determine the cause of death. The facility, somehow tipped off to the raid, successfully moved her head to another facility just beforehand. Another raid, conducted just days after the first, seized most of the equipment in the lab. And while legal battles continued, Alcor successfully sued the county. In addition, a restraining order was granted against the county coroner to protect Alcor's patients, including Dora's head, from future attempts at seizure. Now, as it's likely your cryonic preservation procedure won't be as controversial as Dora's, once you're dead, officially and legally, the preservation procedure can start. Even before the body or patient arrives at the cryonics facility, blood circulation and breathing are restored temporarily to protect the brain and so protective medications can be given. The patient is then cooled in an ice water bath, and blood is replaced with a solution that is designed to preserve its organs. 
After the cooling, the patient is transported to the operating room at the cryogenic facility. And immediately after the patient's arrival, additional cryoprotectant drugs are perfused via the patient's blood to limit or outright prevent freezing. Then once prepared, the patient's temperature is slowly cooled to a negative 196 degrees Celsius or negative 384 degrees Fahrenheit over a period of five to seven days. And once prepared, the patient is transferred to a large stainless steel container with a temperature maintained by liquid nitrogen. And there, the wait, the long wait, begins for a time when technology might enable the patient to be reawakened in the future. Now, of course, it's easy to scoff at this, the urgency of the preparations, the precision of the process. Yet, we've marveled at sci-fi movies like the Alien series where astronauts sleep and then are reawakened after some form of cryosleep. Perhaps, and just perhaps, the aspirations implicit in cryopreservation aren't so extreme after all. Part 3 So let's travel back now to San Leandro, California, where Grandpa Bredo was cryopreserved at trans time. Whether it was the cost of maintaining his grandpa or just a desire to keep him closer by, Boge was busy making the arrangements to establish his own cryonics facility back in Nederland. Boge had been thinking about this for some time, even going so far as exploring the option of putting it on a ship in order to keep his operation far from the reaches of government oversight. But this plan was far beyond his resources so he started on a much smaller scale in Nederland. In 1992, he submitted a proposal to the town's planning commission to build and establish his own cryonics facility, but his proposal was denied. He began construction anyway. Using the money he received from selling Grandpa Bretto's summer cabin in Norway, he purchased land in Nederland and started to build. His design included all the necessary cryonics infrastructure, including several subterranean storage pods, but it would also serve as a home for himself and his mother, Odd. Boget's obsessions with survival extended through his design. He required the facility be able to withstand anything Mother Nature could throw at it, including earthquakes, mudslides, and fire. The main structure would be made from steel, reinforced concrete, and outfitted with fireproof insulation applied using high-pressure hoses. There would be nothing combustible used in the construction except for the building's windows, but this would be a feature Boget was unwilling to leave out. It would leave the building indestructible. The building, looking very much like a castle, still exists today. And by the way, you can check out our collection of photos, including the castle house, on MyDarkPath.com. Boget then flew Grandpa Bretto from California to Stapleton Airport in Denver and drove him to his new home. However, the advanced cryonic center he'd hoped to build wasn't to be. Instead, Grandpa Bretto's cryopreserved body was kept in a small garden shed, cooled by dry ice. The unsophisticated facility didn't prevent Boget from soliciting additional cryonic patients, and soon he'd signed up his first paying client, Al Campbell, a Chicago man who succumbed to his battle with liver failure in 1994. Campbell had not made arrangements in advance for cryopreservation 
and facilities at this time didn't usually accept walk-ins, so he was referred to Boger's facility. Campbell's family signed a six-month contract while they searched for a permanent arrangement at an established cryonics facility. Fueled by this first business success, Boger planned to improve the capabilities of his facility by purchasing a Dewar container. This is a huge stainless steel cylinder reminiscent of something you'd see in Walter White's illegal meth lab or in a high-end brewery, but this is the method that advanced cryonics facilities use to preserve their patients for decades. But Boger's rudimentary cryo facility quickly ran into a major legal issue just months after Campbell arrived. It turns out that Boger had overstayed his visa by 14 years. He was deported back to Norway in May of 1994, leaving responsibility for taking care of Campbell and Grandpa Bredo to his mother, Odd. Heartbroken and distraught, Odd spoke to the local newspaper, the Netherland Mountaineer, a few days after her son was deported. Whether her statement was intentional or just a slip of the tongue, she shared that she had no idea what was going to happen to their bodies. Now that's a scoop on the magnitude that few small-town newspaper writers will ever get. And shortly after the interview, rumors of frozen dead bodies rippled through Nederland and the surrounding area. And soon, local police learned of the shed and its unusual contents. The town ordered an immediate cease-and-desist order, requiring Odd to move the bodies immediately or allow city officials to take possession of them. Outraged, she appeared before the mayor and the city council, and the city passed an ordinance that effectively outlawed the storage of dead bodies on private property. Odd, though, received support from members of the local community, but the property was ruled to be in violation of a number of zoning codes, including the requirement that the property have running water and electricity. The castle house may have been impervious to fire and flood, but lacked basic utilities. Odd was ordered to remove her father's frozen body by March 6, 1995, or face a fine and jail time. But the local news quickly had become an international story. Reporters and TV crews from around the world quickly discovered the tiny town in the mountains of Colorado and the story of the frozen dead guy. Al Campbell was reclaimed by his family, shipped back to Chicago, and cremated. But the global media frenzy portrayed Grandpa Bretto's situation in a sympathetic light and had an effect on the town's leaders. Although their ordinance outlawed the keeping of bodies within the city, they made an exception for Grandpa Bretto. Boger, back in Norway, was still busy trying to upgrade his grandpa's situation. He secured the support of a local environmental company to maintain the facility, and in that same year, a local radio station and Tough Shed built an upgraded shed to house Grandpa Bredo. And with the legal situation resolved and maintenance of Grandpa Bredo's body in better hands, the story of the frozen dead guy in Nederland went quiet for a time. Bo Schaefer, the CEO of the environmental company, kept bringing ice until 2012, earning him the nickname of the Iceman. From his home 45 minutes outside Nederland, Bo would bring approximately 1,800 pounds of dry ice once a month to this small hilltop facility. By this time, Grandpa Bredo's body was housed in a metal sarcophagus, which was encased inside a freezer-sized box Boger had made out of plywood and styrofoam. During Bo's visits, he would record the temperature inside the freezer box, 
which range from a high of negative 60 Fahrenheit to a low of negative 100 Fahrenheit. Poe's tenure as the caretaker ended in 2012 as a result of an undisclosed conflict he had with Boger. So how did Nederland go from attempting to evict Grandpa Bretto to embracing an annual festival that seems like a mountain version of Burning Man? Well, every year, Nederland had held an annual spring festival, and the Chamber of Commerce was tasked with coming up with a theme. The spring festival didn't exactly have enough appeal, though, to entice locals from the closest big city of Boulder to make the half-hour drive across the still-snow-blanketed Highway 119. So they had needed to get creative. What was it about Nederland that set the town apart? Something unique that no place in Colorado had that could draw hordes of visitors. At a Chamber of Commerce meeting, one of the members brought up a small-town event he'd heard of recently. The western Colorado city of Fruta, about four hours away from Nederland, outside of Grand Junction, was gearing up for their fourth annual Mike the Headless Chicken Day, a quirky yet uproarious festival that celebrated Mike the Chicken, who somehow managed to survive for 18 months after being decapitated. The morbid novelty of it all made the festival one of the area's most popular events. And so, Nederland clearly had an even more morbid tale than the headless chicken of Fruta in the form of the frozen dead guy of Grandpa Bretto. 2002 marked the inaugural year of the frozen dead guy festival, which kicked off the first weekend of that march. It is perhaps not surprising that the event was an instant hit, bringing in upwards of $50,000 for local merchants. Festival goers ate, drank, shopped, indulged, and partook in all the cryonics-themed festivities. It had elements reminiscent of Mardi Gras, Oktoberfest, Burning Man, and the Mummers Parade, and perhaps even Headless Chicken Day, all rolled into one boisterous festival that turned what was once considered the town's worst liability into their best and brightest asset. Bo still attends the Frozen Dead Guy Festival each year to celebrate the now- 122-year-old Bretto Morstel. And in case you're wondering, no, Bo Schaefer never opened up the sarcophagus to take a peek at what Grandpa Bretto looked like after being kept on ice for more than two decades. But he is honored to have cared for Nederland's most famous resident. The job for caring for Grandpa Bretto, along with the keys to the shed, were handed over in 2012 to Brad Wickham, who saw the opportunity as his chance to work through his struggles with PTSD, which had sent him into a downward spiral of self-medication with drugs and alcohol. For Wickham, taking care of Grandpa Bretto was indeed a life-saving, healing experience for him. He retired from the role just 12 weeks before what would have been the 20th annual Frozen Dead Guy Days Festival if it had not been canceled in 2020 because of COVID. And today, at the time of this recording, Grandpa Bretto is now being cared for by Amanda McDonald, the Frozen Dead Guy Festival co-owner and event coordinator. So, how does Boger feel about the Frozen Dead Guys Festival? Initially, both he and his mother seemed all for it. In fact, in 2005, Odd was asked to be the Grand Marshal of the festival's parade. After lobbying two of Colorado's Congress members and Norway's king and queen, Odd was issued a three-month visa to travel to the United States for the event. But once she got to Nederland and saw how much money was being made off her father without sharing any of the profits with Grandpa Bretto's family, she became angry. 
and there was at least one confrontation between Odd and one of Nederland's local merchants over money she claimed that was owed for selling Grandpa Bretto t-shirts, after which Odd was arrested and charged with harassment. From Norway, Boget attempted to shut the entire festival down, but the only authority he really had was to ban any future tours of Grandpa Bretto's shed. But it was clear for all to see that what had started as one frozen dead guy in a shed had turned into something much, much greater. The icy relations between its organizers, the town of Nederland, and Boget eventually thawed, and visitors could again get a tour of Grandpa Bretto's shed. Boget no longer opposes the commercialization of Grandpa Bretto, perhaps because he has paid a third of all tour profits and because he holds at least 51 trademarks, including the words Frozen Grandpa. Grandpa Bretto and all the other people we've discussed today are by no means the only ones determined to survive the greatest hurdle to immortality, death itself. I certainly don't want to judge anyone's attempts to outlive this mortal existence, and if anything, I think the pursuit of cryonic preservation has a very optimistic perspective about the future. Why would you want to preserve yourself to be resuscitated if you didn't think the future would be worth living in? No matter what skepticism one may have about the technology, I love the optimism that is embedded in its pursuit. But no matter your perspective, if you want to see how one frozen dead guy's life is celebrated, be sure to show up in Nederland, Colorado for the annual Frozen Dead Guy Days Festival next year. As always, thank you for listening to My Dark Path. I'm M.F. Thomas, the creator and host. If you enjoyed this podcast, please take a moment to give us a five-star rating. And again, thanks for walking the dark paths of history, science, and the paranormal with me. Until next time, good night. Welcome to Ghostly. Pat, what are you doing? What? I want people to know that we're a podcast that takes a deep dive into some of the scariest ghost stories. But we don't do the creepy voices or weird sound effects. We debate the ghost stories. And aren't you supposed to be the skeptic? I am, but they'll find that out once they listen. Look, all you have to do is tell them to listen to Ghostly and that our listeners get to decide which stories are real. And which stories are just old folklore. Exactly. Download Ghostly wherever you find great podcasts. Oh, jeez. <laughs> oh.